I'm Darian Slayton Fleming, and thank you for joining me on Get What You Need and Feel Good About It. Do you find it difficult to ask for what you need? Do you frequently feel misunderstood? Do you have a problem or cause that you would like to learn to manage more effectively? What makes it so hard for us to tell each other how we feel? And how do we speak up for ourselves so we get what we need and feel good about it? How do we do this respectfully so that we honor the needs and feelings of others? Together, we'll explore tips, strategies, and resources that when used mindfully and consistently will improve our results and enrich our relationships. Hello and welcome back to Get What You Need and Feel Good About It. I'm Darian Slayton Fleming and this is episode number seven. Today I'm interviewing Candy Cole, but she also happens to be my auntie. So we've had a long journey together and I've gone through my ups and downs with Candy and she's gone through her ups and downs with me. The reason that I'm interviewing Candy today is because I'm doing a couple interviews about people who have multiple sclerosis. Welcome, Candy. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. Candy, I spilled the beans. I reported that I'm interviewing you because you have multiple sclerosis. My first question, Candy, is tell us about the book you're writing and what inspired you to write it. Well, it's about my life having MS. And pardon me if I tear up a little bit because it's tough. Um, I have had MS since I was 22. I have three kids, been married for 55 years plus, have um, five grandchildren, one great grandchild. And he's the light of my life. Um, I decided to write this book um, because I wanted to share my experiences and hope that some of some other people will maybe be inspired. Right. And didn't you also write this book as a way of reviewing and processing your experience developing MS and how you got to the point where you are now, sort of a therapeutic focus for you? Uh, I don't, I didn't look at it that way so much. I looked at, I had people ask me, tell me to write a book just, and I, they told me how positive it was. And I don't see my own positivity. I have to admit that, but apparently it's there because other people see it. Um, I was at work one day and I fell downstairs and then I had to tell everybody that I had MS. Don't know that it was the reason I fell down those stairs, but um, when a person found out that I did that and he had, was in charge of writing a newspaper, he asked me to write an article about it. And that's the first time that I wrote anything about me and my MS. And I wrote that article. It was just a one page, eight by eight by 11 page. And I just started out with how I got it. And when I was diagnosed and how just as short synopsis of my life up to that time, this other book that I'm writing just for the Kindle is, is a short $5,000 5,000 word um, story, a small snippet of my life, but I have a bigger book planned a little later on that tells about all the things that I went through from being diagnosed 
and um, raising my kids, living on a farm, serving on school boards, starting parent groups, um, starting a foundation and living life. The MS does not define you. You are Candy Cole, the woman, and the MS is part of you. And it has affected your life at various points in your life. Where were you and what was happening when you got diagnosed? Because you kind of had life by its tail. You had the whole future ahead of you. And then you got this diagnosis. Uh I was, um, it was an August day, warm and nice. And Larry had been out of the Marines. He got out in like March. We had a, we bought a house and um, I was having symptoms and the symptoms were really strange. I had my fingertips were numb and my feet tips, my toes were numb. And all of a sudden half of my face was numb. And I, I had all the excuses for those things. I must've poked myself somewhere. My nerve must be out. I pinched her somewhere. But then when I got a spot on my eye, that was a circle, dark circle in my eye. And it wouldn't, it changed. I mean, it wouldn't change. It stayed in the same spot and I could look all around, but it was still there. So I was a little nervous about that. And uh, so I went to see the doctor and he took an x-ray of my eye thinking it was the optic nerve. And it was so funny because, you know, they lay you on those tables and they make you do a, uh, lay down on a metal table at that time it was in the seventies. Okay. So you lay down flat and try to put your nose one way and your cheek another way, trying to be in a, a triangle type thing. And um, they take the x-ray then. So the x-ray came back, my optic nerve was fine. So he said, I think you better see a neurologist. So then I went to see a neurologist and that was the story of my life. This doctor was um, had a heavy German accent and he did a lot of different tests, testing my fingertips and my toes and my, raked a, a sharp pen up my, um, the sole of my feet, checked all my uh, reflexes in my elbows and knees and stuff. And he did my knee and my knee just reflex, just my foot went right up, darn it, clipped him in the chin. But after all those, uh, the reflexes and stuff like that, he decided that uh, whatever I had was in the field of MS. And that was all he said. And then he left the room and came back with a prescription for Valium. And that was it. I was, that was it. I had MS. So we didn't tell you anything about um, things Nothing. you might expect. Oh, sorry. Yes, he did. He did. He told me that I would have, I would probably be in a wheelchair and probably not live, won't, shouldn't have kids. I already had a child, shouldn't have kids, would be in a wheelchair and probably be dead in five years. Wow. And so that was just a pretty succinct this is going to be the way it is. And, That's what he thought. <laughs> and he left the room and he left you to figure out, oh, what do I do now? So what was the next thing you did? The next thing I did is I composed myself. I didn't really, but I walked out of there and I went right into my husband's arms and we went home and we went to my folks house because that's where my daughter was. And that was the hardest thing for me to do. And I might tear up right now because telling my mom, my dad was the hardest thing. Suddenly you're not the same, but they all love me. And I knew that. So I took one of those pills that the doctor gave me and I went to lay down. Well, first I had to see my daughter. She was asleep. And so when she finally woke up, I told her I was going to take a nap and that I was okay. And that she would go see her, her Nana. 
And that dad would always be there to take care of her. And I laid down, took one of those pills and the room just spun around. And I thought, this is it. I got up and I, I actually threw the rest of them down the toilet. And I said, this is just not where I'm going to be. It's not going to run my life. I will do what I, what I will do, what I want to do, not this. So I made a choice. Either I, either I accept this like it is and just go with that or I fight it. I chose to fight it. So you threw the Valium away and you I decided did. I'm just going to be tough and strong and I'm going to do whatever I have to do. That's right. With the help of the Lord. I simply said, we'll make it through. We'll make it through. I, I was raised in the, with my dad being an alcoholic and we always said the serenity prayer, you know, uh, accept the things you cannot change, change the things you can and, and know the wisdom to do, to know the difference. So I've always had a belief in, in God. And I just, I didn't say anything. I just knew it was there. It's funny how your faith is, you don't have to speak it specifically. You just feel it. It's inside you and you just feel it. And that's what I did. I just felt it. And I knew I was going to be okay. And I knew I would be able to do whatever I needed to do with the help of him. And he would give me the tools to use to fight it. And he did. All my life, it's, it's been that way. I've always had the tools to fight it. You're a strong woman. Tell us one or two challenges that came up that you had to navigate through and how you overcame them. So was it one of them deciding when and if you were going to tell people you work with? Oh, that was, you know, that was a, it wasn't, (laughs) those things all happened in the moment and you're put on the spot and you just have to confess. (laughs) And so, and accept it and go on. And it's interesting because once you confess to other people, they see you in a different light. And some of them understand and are, are willing to see you without seeing your cane, your walker, or your difficulties. Others see the cane, the walker, or your difficulties, and they assume that you no longer have a brain and that you're done. <laughs> it's always in the moment when other people find out and they recognize that either they accept it and see you for who you are inside and not the outside part. I remember you telling me about a challenge that you experienced and it was around your decision to to think positively as much as you could. And so anytime someone would ask you a question that would need you to answer, like, this is how I do it, sometimes you're kind of resistant to that because you are just about being and doing, not bringing a lot of attention to it. And sometimes, believe it or not, sometimes it's harder for the other people in our life to accept it than it is for us. Can you, at the risk of spilling the beans, can you tell us about the time you were in the carpool and what happened that was a really tough time for me. I'll tell you, I, one time I was driving in the wind was blowing and it was just one of those things that it's just was, it's still like really nice day it was nice and bright outside and the wind was blowing. And I said, 
wouldn't it be nice if you could just have a trench coat? Can you just imagine if you had a trench coat and you lifted out your arms and the wind just take, took you for a ride wearing your trench coat and then you just fly over? And the lady that sat next to me said, why do you have to be so positive all the time? I do have to be positive all the time because that's it's just the way I am. I see the bright side of things instead of seeing the negative side. If there's a negative side, I've turned it around. And it's a natural thing. You just turn it around. Because the negative side takes you nowhere, but the positive takes you, positive side takes you wherever you want to go. And I want to go a lot of places. And and you're still doing that. Tell us about your work with the phone company and what what ended up happening ultimately there. I, I started working at the phone company when I was 17, running out of high school. Then I had to have surgery and I had to make a decision. This doctor at that time, the, the companies had their own physicians that if you were sick, you could go see them and they would, you know, give you prescriptions or whatever to help you get better. But they also required you when you went out on leave or whatever to, to see that doctor in order to come back. And this doctor was not very nice. I was there just for him to check my fingertips so that I would be able to do my frame attendant job, which required you to use a soldering iron at the time. And I was concerned because I couldn't feel the the fingertips would be could be burnt and I wouldn't realize it until it was too late. And so that's the reason I was there was to get his approval for me to go back to work. And he wanted to, he wanted me to take my blouse off. And I said, no, that's not why I'm here. And he continued on to tell me that I have MS and that I would be dead in five years and wheelchair and blah, blah, blah. And I was so upsetting. I One of the things about MS for me is that I cry and it's a cry that is a sobbing cry that just takes your breath away. You cannot breathe. It's so deep. It just sucks the life out of you. And until you can calm yourself down and overcome that, it's there. And your whole body is riveted. You're, you're shaking. You, you can't talk. You're just trying to get your breath. You just want your, your nostrils to open up. You want your chest open. You, you want to stop crying and it just doesn't happen. So I was in that fit and I, I left the room. My sister was waiting for me in the, in the lobby there and I went home and I, I was so upset about that. And I decided that I wasn't going to go back to work. I would just stay home with my family because I did not want to have to go back to work and have to face that again. I couldn't do it. So I made a choice then to stay home and be with my family. And that was a horrible experience with that guy. <laughs> I'll tell you that it was not funny. So over and over again, I hear stories about people <clears throat> being given diagnoses by doctors with no ingredient of hope or direction added. It's really devastating to get a diagnosis without any provision of hope or resources and and that's kind of what happened to you you had two different doctors tell you the worst case scenario which left you feeling really at a loss and what were some other feelings that came up at that time they didn't have um or at least i was not aware of they had mris and things like that i guess i just accepted what I had. And I didn't do any more research. I had a friend that looked up 
looked it up and did, said to me, you really need to take some vitamin Bs, the stress stuff that really has, because the vitamin Bs control, can uh, coat your nerve endings, which MS is all about your nerve endings. It's about they get brittle and they, that they stop the connections from your brain to your, the rest of your body. And uh, that's why you have lesions on your brain because that little spark is not there anymore. And so I started taking the vitamin Bs way back in 1970, as soon as I was diagnosed, I suppose, at least at starting in 72. And I've always taken them since. But back then, they didn't have a whole lot of stuff. I, I don't know when the MS Society um, was organized and things like that. But at that point in time, I wasn't interested in anything like that. I was more concerned about my family. I was okay. I wasn't really in a lot of pain. I didn't have any of that stuff. I just resumed my activity. As far as I, I was concerned, I didn't have anything. I was fine. I was fine. I could do anything I wanted to do. Just leave me alone. So I never researched anything like that. Even though the doctors told me that I, I just, at the moment, you soak it in anything. Golly, man, I've got five years maybe, but it left my mind and it wasn't there anymore. I just ignored it. And I did not focus on MS for a long time. I never talked about it. Nobody asked me about it. I didn't bring it up. It was just a taboo in my family. We just didn't talk about it. I just did my own thing. So your coping strategies then, what that you chose to use, that you still choose to use, one of the big ones is remaining positive. And if something negative pops up, you find a way to reframe it and make it more positive. You find a solution. So how do you do that? How do you remain positive? Oh, that's not easy to say. Um, I'll tell you what, improvise, adapt, overcome. <laughs> that's my husband's Larry Marine, his Marine stuff. I just have gone that way. And it, it's just, I never, I don't look at the dark side because like I said, there's nothing there. You have to go on. There's there's always a rainbow out there to find. You just improvise, adapt, overcome. If you can't, if you think you can't do it, find a way to do it because there's a way to do it. Other people do it. You just do it. The other thing is again is my faith. I just depend on that a lot. And and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all that I have. I feel that all these things that I have given. I was given the opportunity to start parent groups. I was given the opportunities to serve on school boards. I was given the opportunity to start a foundation. These were all opportunities that were gift, given to me. Why should I decline them or not accept them and see them in a positive fashion? So you, you took opportunities to make a difference in a positive way in other people's lives. And we know that giving back for the volunteer, the, the benefits of volunteering often outweigh the benefits that the people we are serving receive. One of the benefits for you was that you could distract yourself from your own challenges and apply your thoughts and actions to what you could do, not what you can't do. That's right. exactly right. You know, when I first organized a parent group at the elementary school and we built a, a um, playground structure, that, that 
was the most exciting thing I thought in for a long time because those kids when they first came to school and that brand new structure was there they were like little busy bees and that was give me it filled my heart with happiness because you could just see those little kids running it up sliding down the slides swinging on the swings and doing the rest of the stuff what a good feeling you get when you do stuff like that that's the positive side and that's what keeps the bad stuff away is the positivity positivity and you mentioned your faith mm-hmm. and you also mentioned your family so our support systems are really important to keep in mind to know who our support people are and be able at least to talk to them how has your family been helpful in your journey you know i think everybody understands what others might consider limitations, but my family doesn't see them as limitations for me. They see, they see it as the opportunity for me to accomplish whatever I'm going for, going to do. They assist me in that. They don't, they don't um, stand in my way when I want to do something. They will figure out a way to help me out. Um, they know I'm determined and they're not going to stand in my way. <laughs> so and they know that. So they will assist me. And they, they do better when I ask them to assist me. They do better when they don't take it upon themselves to just do it. They do better when I, they wait for me to ask for my for them to help me. I think it's just a common sense way to do things. Um, people understand that when you have difficulties with mobility and or other things, that that's a big part of your independent feeling. And once you lose that independent feeling, it's hard. And so you don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. And so my family knows that. So they let me do what I need to do my way. And when I want their help, then they help me. <laughs> I've had to tell them that, no, I have to do it this way. And I'll tell you, don't let me first lift. All I want you to do is lift my leg up. This just this big. And then let me do the rest. <laughs> so that's that. And they learn to listen to what I need them to do for me to do accomplish what I want to do. But my husband is really good. He does he does what I ask him to do. Just lift my leg up so I can get on the running board of my truck and then I'll pull myself in. I'm good. <laughs> so they do have to listen to me. And they're pretty, they know me. They know me and they they do what I ask. So for people who are listening, who are looking for ideas about how do I educate my family about what I need and, and what I need them to allow me to do to maintain my independence. Sounds like one of the biggest things is asking them to ask if we need help or how they can help us, but not just automatically swooping in and, and doing it. And so what you've managed to do is inform your family about how to offer their help. Yes, I agree. And that's taken a while because they all people and families in particular, caring families want to help other members of their family. They want to do things for them. They see them struggling and they want to do it for them. And that's not where, and I've told them, I need to do this for myself because once you take away your independence, I become dependent on you and I I don't want that feeling and I don't want to be dependent on you for everything. You've got your own life to live, but it's at the same time, they want to 
they love you so much they want to do it for you. But they need to love you so much that they need to let you do it for yourself. They need to understand that in order for you to keep your independence, you have to be able to do it your way and then be able to ask them for assistance when you deem it's necessary. So you're the kind of person that when you fall down, you get back up and keep on doing what you want to do. It's kind of a metaphor for life in for you isn't it just keep on doing it you do you do what else are you gonna do i i there's so many things to do there's so many things this is my this is my this is what i've thought all along my life i was given this ms for a reason but i don't think i would have been able to do the things that i've done did i had i not had ms um i think the ms part of me has driven me to be successful in doing a number of things that I've done, the things that I've accomplished, whether it was at work, whether it was in volunteering or church or whatever. I don't think that those opportunities would have been given to me had I not had this. And it's my, and as a gift, and you know, when you give, when you receive something, you need to send it back tenfold. And that's what I try to do. Send it back tenfold. And how do you send it back tenfold? Well, I volunteer, I um, donate things, I do whatever I need to do to send it other ways. We live on a farm and so we have eggs, so we have extra eggs, we give them to the food bank. Um, We have beef, we have extra beef, we give it to the food bank. We uh, make jams and jellies for the church bazaar. Um, And when I was at school and volunteering in school, that was the other part. Volunteering at school was just a delight because when you see the spark on those kids' faces when they get something and you're there to help them read and do whatever, what an awesome feeling you get. Tenfold, you get it back. So again, volunteering is actually a solution for finding your way back because you find that giving to others is rewarding because you get a sense of having given back. Let's just go back and review a couple of highlights of your life that you're most proud of and that allow you to keep on doing what you do. I think my volunteer at the school system is probably one of my biggest ones being on the school board and, and was a decision-making position. And the ultimate goal with the foundation was to provide things that the school district couldn't to the different classrooms. And I think that's one of the, my biggest feelings of feeling good about what I've done is doing that. And the other thing is during my tenure was being able to, as a board member, be able to do thank you cards to all the, all the um, staff uh, in the school district and I every year I would do handwritten uh, thank you cards to them because nothing makes you feel better about yourself than to somebody tell you thank you for doing the job that you've done and you've done it really well what a good thing that feeling is it's a good feeling for me to give it out that way and see them receive it that way and to me that probably that was the biggest highlights of things of my life in the past but right now it's about my family and I have a great-grandson that comes and visits me at least twice a week. And I dance with him with my walker and he's pretty smart. So he keeps me on my toes and we keep on going. Dancing with your walker. What are some challenges with using your walker? Well, I'll tell you what, (laughs) 
There, I've taken some falls with my walker. One time we were at the beach, I think, and we were down a sidewalk and it just happened to have one of those driveway things that was slanted there. And I was too much on the left side. And since MS is on my right side, I list to the left, incredibly funny, but, and I leaned to the left too much and I went right down and my walker went over sideways and I was, oh man, but a nice gentleman came before my husband could get to me came and lifted it up and I got back up and stuff. And I just went on my merry way. I've had some other incidences when I've been at school one time at the high school. And I, and I'm always, I, I am self-conscious of my walker. There's no doubt about it because I just am, but I volunteered there enough that the kids knew me. But one time these darn, these darn rug, rugs in the doorways will trip you up before you know it. They catch the tip of your toe and you are down like a, like a fly on a watermelon, I'm telling you. And so that happened to me and I was down on my knees and I thought, I cannot get myself up, back up. And one of the girls says, do you need help? And I, I'm just not one to say, yes, I need help. I instantly said, yes, I need help. And before I knew it, there was four kids that picked me up and I was out of the door and walking like normal. So it's just happens and you just have to go with the flow and pick yourself up and move on <laughs> and laugh about it because there's nothing else to do. You have to laugh about it. So asking for help, that is something that most of us have a hard time doing, especially when we've been used to being so independent. What made you decide it was okay to ask for help? I think I knew I couldn't get myself up out of that situation. And I knew that all the kids were staring at me and thinking, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? You know, they may have, they may or may not have had a panic look in their heart in their, in their, on their face, but I knew I needed to solve it, the problem, and I needed to ask for help. And so I did. And it's funny because I've had other experiences at home. I don't really like to have a lot of help at home. I try to figure it out for myself, but when I'm in the public, I need to ask for help. I realized that pretty quickly after that. And and when you actually do ask for help, how do you feel after that? I was okay. I was okay with it. As I walked out the door and made it out to the out to the, the truck and Larry waiting for me to come out of the school, I felt okay about it because I I I couldn't have gotten myself up. And I had no other options. Those kids were there in the hallway. They had they had school to do and stuff. And there was no reason why I could just sit there in the hallway and do nothing. Um, I just had to ask for help and get out of their way. And I think that the other side of that is I think that you don't need to think about what happened and the pain or whatever you felt at the time. You have to think about it after the fact and laugh about it because you can't change it, number one. But you can laugh about it and make fun of it and make fun of yourself. You And it just it does something to you. You just feel better about it you feel better about yourself. You know, you're not putting yourself down or anything like that. You're picking yourself up and you're making yourself do, do what you normally do. I think that's what you have to do. So I think the theme here is figure out what you can do rather than focusing on what you can't do. Finding strength to ask for help when you need it finding ways to be as independent as possible to maintain your own 
dignity and sanity and personhood. So do you have any parting words? Like what did you learn from all of this? And how would you advise our listeners to get to a point where they can navigate their own challenges? There's a lot of things out there. Um, the MS Society has a magazine and there's a diet. And Dr. Swank from um, OHSU wrote a book about the diet for MS. He was one of the first people to recognize it and figure out the diet affects you as salmon and chicken and, and not so much red meat and lots of fruits and vegetables. I think that people with MS need to realize that diet has a lot to do with how you are. But I think if you're interested and you want to do research, great do that so that it answers your own questions. I just accepted that I had this difficulty and happened to be called MS and I have to figure out ways to overcome it. And I think if you want a positivity, some positive things and surround yourself with positive people, make yourself a, a circle of positivity and which rejects the negativity around you. Do that. I think that's the best thing in the world is just to fill yourself with positivity and, and all the joy that you can see. Look out the window and see clouds, but know that there's a rainbow behind it. Check the show notes for resources because I am going to post a resource for the MS Society and also a link to the book by Dr. Swank that Candy referred to. And Candy... I am so thankful for you sharing your personal story with us. It's it's a story of strength and courage and perseverance and positivity. And I just hope that one, even if one person is touched by your story, it will make a difference. For joining me today on Get What You Need and Feel Good About It. Remember, when you speak up for yourself assertively, you will get what you need and feel good about it. You will also be showing respect for yourself and for the other people in your life who are important to you. Until next time, try thinking about it like Stephanie LaHart says it. Say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't say it mean. Before it gets too late, and the only